<clears throat> Son of a bitch. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the show. <clears throat> all right, busy show for you today. Um, Nira Tandon is all over the news yet again for obvious reasons. She's uh, up for OMB director. She hit a wee bit of a snag, if I don't say so myself. So there's a lot to say on that front. We're going to talk about it. Um, We have David Sirota exposing uh, Cuomo and Republican leadership when it comes to COVID-19 and the disastrous reaction to it. We have the details of the Mitt Romney-Tom Cotton minimum wage increase. And um, it's even worse than I thought it would be. Like, I had guessed it was going to be $12 an hour. <clears throat> it's not even 12 It's not even 12 It's really pathetic. So we'll talk about that. Um, Joe Manchin weighed in on the minimum wage debate and told everybody where he stands. We have a bunch of, st- a bunch of Fox News stuff. Um, there's going to be a lot of attacking Liz Cheney in today's show. Dave Rubin has gone full religious zealot. The craziest fundamentalist we all know, televangelist Rick Wiles, shocked the shit out of me by seemingly turning hard left on something, so we're going to talk about that. And uh, later on, we have Democratic lawmakers punishing um, cable providers for carrying right-wing outlets and 2024 GOP presidential polling numbers. This is interesting. So anyway, without further ado... mm. I'm going to need to drink quite a bit of water because I'm, I just ate something, and so my mouth is, <clears throat> my throat is not clear. Okay. Try my best, y'all. Try my best. Here we go. MSNBC did some coverage of Neera Tandon. She's, of course, up for OMB director, and she's struggling to get enough votes to be confirmed. So... As I'm talking to you now, they actually just postponed the hearing that was supposed to happen, which is a sign that there may be a little bit of a white flag being waved by the Biden administration. So here's MSNBC covering this a day or two ago. I want you to take note of their description of her. So, you know, I asked that same question about Tandon. She's someone close to the White House. You know, why double down on this? Why not, you know, people are privately acknowledging they don't have a 50th vote somewhere. There was some talk about Senator Portman maybe getting behind her at some point. You know, that does not appear to be happening. Uh, There's no indication that she has enough votes to be confirmed. So why not just pull the nomination? The person said to me, you know, there's not really any upside to the White House in doing that at this point. Maybe it could move the process along by putting someone else up there, uh, you know, but it would just upset her supporters, it would upset progressives and the liberal wing of the party, and their case, too, was that for Tandon, who could also withdraw her name, you know, this has given her a high profile, uh, it has increased her popularity with liberals, she's sort of seen as this progressive fighter, um, you know, and, and it's just getting her name out there and getting her some visibility, so their take was there wasn't really any upside in doing it at this point. The dumbest commentary I've ever heard. I mean, that's just like, 
what they're saying is fundamentally inaccurate. The idea that I, I jotted it down. Um, oh, you're going to upset her supporters and progressives. They say, oh, you know, the liberal wing of the party. They mean like, you know, they mean the left base when they say the liberal wing. Um, the liberal wing of the party is, is going to be upset at this. It's, it's given her a high profile, they say, about uh, the hearings. That's true. She's getting more coverage in media than she's ever gotten previously. But then they say she's viewed as a progressive fighter. The reason why this story is interesting and important is that it really shows you how little voices in corporate media really know. Like, most of the people who watch Secular Talk or any of the left-wing media ecosystem, you guys are actually hyper-educated on politics. You're, you're political junkies, and I don't even think you guys get the extent of your own deep knowledge on these topics. Like, you just probably like it and got obsessed with it, and so you just consume it as a matter of habit. But, like, you're very educated on these things, way more so than your average American. But more importantly, way more so than mainstream media voices who are supposed to be super educated on this stuff. They're supposed to know what they're talking about. They're supposed to be providing information and educating people about what's going on in the process and holding people accountable and all that stuff. And they fundamentally don't do any of that stuff well. And so it's a bunch of overpaid hacks who are out there usually giving their opinion, not really giving information. And um, they botch something as simple as that. Like anybody who follows this stuff remotely closely could tell you. The left hates Neera Tandon, despises Neera Tandon, because Neera Tandon spent an extended period of time making her life mission to torpedo Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign and smear his supporters 18 ways to Sunday. When you look at her record, it's not even close to a progressive record that would make her a progressive fighter. I mean, that's just totally disconnected from reality. She repeatedly advocated Social Security and Medicare cuts. Repeatedly. That alone is like strike one, you're out, you're not a progressive fighter. That's corporatism 101. Um, she casually said we should bomb Libya steal their oil, and use the proceeds to pay down the deficit. So hawkish, imperialistic, and a deficit hawk, all in one story. That one has everything. She punched Faz Shakir because Faz Shakir asked Hillary Clinton a question about her support of the Iraq war. She is swimming in corporate money. You know, uh, the Center for American Progress, the whole point of the Center for American Progress was to be a shadow government for when Hillary Clinton got elected. And she would just take everybody from CAP and bring them into the administration. And so that's why you had money from the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel and a variety of multinational corporations pouring into CAP because they were the bribes that were paid in anticipation of a Hillary Clinton presidency. And she plays ball, man. She plays ball. The best example of that is what happened with Mike Bloomberg, where Mike Bloomberg has given a tremendous amount of money to CAP over the years. And um, CAP axed a report that went after... Michael Bloomberg and talked about his anti-Muslim discrimination when he was mayor in New York City. So, I mean, there's endless stories with, you know, a truckload of details about how she's a corporate warmonger, and all that's just 
not brought up. It's just asserted that Neera Tandon uh, is a star of the left and she has a high profile and she's viewed as a progressive fighter. Listen, 90% of the left that I know and that I see, it can't wait to see her get slapped down. And actually, it was the first time maybe ever any of us have given Joe Manchin credit. Now, admittedly, Manchin is not voting her down for the right reasons. His reason has to do with, like, Twitter decorum, which is stupid. I don't care about her mean tweets. But nonetheless, he ended up in the correct place. And so that's why I've given him tepid credit. Others have given him tepid credit on the left. And, um, but funny enough, you know, their logic really only goes as deep sometimes as, like, She's a woman, a woman in this position. The left has to support her because she's a woman. So they think like, they think that it's not about policy. It's all about identity. And they could just lean on that. And again, it just shows how deeply uneducated and unserious they are on, on these topics. And the most important takeaway is that exactly this mindset for this story, just apply it across the board because it's correct to do that. Like, they don't know when they talk about the war in Afghanistan or the war in Iraq or, or money in politics. It, it doesn't matter. Whatever the issue is, assume this level of competency, which is to say non-existent. So it's terrible, man. It's terrible. I, you know, there's a good case to be made that if people watch mainstream media, they're less educated than somebody who watches no news media. We know for sure that's the case with Fox because they've studied it. I don't know if they've done it with CNN and MSNBC, but I wouldn't be surprised if the results were similar because this is just everything they're saying here is fundamentally untrue and it's ridiculous and it shows you how little they know. Okay, next. Now, on the same topic, near a tandem, I I have some evidence for you of one of the claims I just made. So Neera Tandon up for OMB director. Um, The Biden administration is standing by her, although it doesn't look like it matters how much they stand by her. Right now, they simply don't have the votes in order to get her approved. Um, That could change. I don't know, but it's not looking likely. So now you see the hack smear attempts, the desperate attempts for mainstream media and corporatists to try to get her approved. And the Democrats are leaning into the most disingenuous arguments you can imagine. So this is from Politico. A double standard going on. Democrats accuse GOP and Manchin of bias on Biden nominations. Charges of sexism and white male privilege are flying as near attendance nomination looks increasingly doomed. Here we go. Here we go. The cheapest, dirtiest tricks in the book. They're all being brought out for a corrupt corporate warmonger like Neera Tan. Let me just give you, you know, there's a lot we could say about this article. I'll just give you this one piece here. Quote, there's a double standard going on, said Representative Judy Chu, a Democrat of California, head of the Congressional Asian Pacific American Caucus. Her nomination is very significant for us Asian American and Pacific Islanders. I do believe that this double standard has to do with the fact that she would be a pioneer in that position. So the argument is, the reason why Joe Manchin and Republicans are opposed to Neera Tandon is because she's a woman, and she's a woman of color. 
That's the argument. That's the argument. The double standard has to do with the fact that she would be a pioneer in that position. So Joe Manchin, according to them, Joe Manchin and the Republicans are sitting around going, I'm opposed to her because she's a woman of color and she'd be a pioneer in this field. I think they know that they're full of shit. I don't think that they believe the stuff that they're saying. I think they know they're playing dirty, cheap politics in order to smear opponents to get them to fall in line. They're hoping Joe Manchin or a handful of Republicans go, God, but you, oh God, no, I, me? I love women and I love women of color, bro. In fact, I love women, women of color so much I'll overlook all of Nira's policy flaws and I'll, find, I'll support her. That's what they're trying to get done here. It truly is stunning. Now listen, the reason why Republicans are opposed to Nira has nothing to do with the fact that she's a woman of color. The reason why Republicans are opposed to her is because she was vicious in smearing them on Twitter. Now, that's actually the upside of Nira, in my opinion. I thought it was hilarious when she called Mitch McConnell Voldemort and she said, like, a vampire has more heart than Ted Cruz. So that's actually the little bit I like about her. You can't be surprised if you say that and then those people aren't too hot on you. And you certainly can't say, oh, it must be because she's a woman of color. No, maybe it's more to do with the fact that she called you Voldemort or a vampire and, you know, called Susan Collins, who's supposed to be one of the moderate Republicans, quote, the worst. So, of course, of course, that's why. Also, these ideologically, they're not too much in agreement, you know, um, more so than people would like to admit. There is a little bit of overlap because I think fundamentally near is a corporate Democrat, very similar to like a moderate Republican. Um, but there are significant disagreements on policy for these people. Um, now, when it comes to Joe Manchin, Joe Manchin told you why he's against her. Joe Manchin loves to play the game of like, I'm a believer in decorum and civility and bipartisan politics. And Nira said really mean things, not just about the Republicans, but also about my friend Bernie Sanders. So he's against her because of the mean tweets. Because he thinks, like, we have a very toxic political environment now, and she's adding more toxicity to it, and that's unacceptable. I want people who are more above the fray, or at least aren't this controversial. So, listen, I don't, even, I don't agree with Joe Manchin's reasoning as to why to oppose Nira Tandon, but that's why he opposes Nira Tandon. He's not hiding anything. It's not, he's not secretly twisting his evil mustache behind closed doors and saying, I'm against all women of color. So they're lying, and I think... They know they're lying, and I don't think this is going to work, but it says a lot this is the only trick that they can go to, doesn't it? And this was the same playbook that happened when Hillary in 2016 was the nominee. If you disagreed with her, even if you laid out in detail the policy disagreements, it's, oh, you're against her because she's a woman and you're a sexist. I mean, how many times the old Bernie bro smear was trotted out to call, you know, people who are the left base of the country, the people who support the most left-wing policies somehow they're racist and sexist and bigoted and whatever. Fill in the blank with whatever kind of smear you want. But, like, here's the bottom line, man. Here's the bottom line. Mean tweets aside, how many times have we gone over Nira's record? Nira Tandon said we should bomb Libya, steal their oil, and use the proceeds to pay down the U.S. deficit. She advocated for Social Security cuts. She punched Fah Shakir when Fah Shakir asked Hillary Clinton a question about her support of the Iraq War. The whole point of the Center for American Progress was to be corrupt and represent the corporate Democrat wing of the party. And that's exactly what happened. Take money from Bloomberg, and then you axe a report on Bloomberg's anti-Muslim bigotry. Take money from the UAE and Saudi Arabia and Israel, and then you play ball on that front as well. You're not going to be as tough on them when they're paying the bills. 
And the reason why CAP existed was to be the shadow government for Hillary Clinton administration in waiting. That was the whole point. And so, yes, you absolutely should reject her. You absolutely should vote her down, but you should vote her down based on policy. Yes, the Republicans and Joe Manchin are correct with the wrong reasoning, but you know what? I'll take it. I'll take it. But this is all they have to respond. And this is why good people are turned off to politics across the board. Is because, you know, who wants to get involved in this debate and this discussion and then immediately be accused of being a racist, sexist, bigot, everything negative under the sun? And people just, the most annoying thing ever is when people tell you what you believe while you're trying to say, like, no, I'll tell you what I believe. I'll tell you exactly what I believe in as much detail as you want. And then they just swat it aside and say, no, the reason why you're doing what you're doing is what I say. I say it's X, Y, and Z, and that's why you're doing it. Why would anybody want to get involved in that conversation when they feel like they're being maligned? So anyway, this is all they got, man. This is all they got. And thankfully, it looks like it's probably not going to work. Uh, Neera Tandon's um, hopes are hanging on by a thread. Barely, barely, barely. They just postponed some of the hearings. So we'll see. You know, the gavel, gavel might be pounded pretty soon that uh, she has no chance at all. Okay, next. Next. So there's a, uh, there's a pretty big scandal going on involving Andrew Cuomo. Andrew Cuomo um, made a decision in New York to send COVID-positive nursing home patients back to nursing homes. This happened at the beginning of the pandemic, and what happened is exactly what you would expect. You send COVID-positive patients back to be around other people and in closed facilities, and COVID spread like wildfire. And the number of deaths skyrocketed in New York. And what we learned recently is they lied every step of the way about the numbers of deaths. It was 50% more than what they were saying. So he made the decision to send these old people back around other old people in enclosed quarters. A bunch of people got COVID. A bunch of people died. And then they lied about it and covered it up. And the asshole wrote a book talking about, you know, lessons of leadership on how I handle COVID so well. And there was this myth that was developed around Andrew Cuomo that he's so competent and he's such a good leader and he handled COVID better than anybody. And it's just that a myth. And CNN had him on where Chris Cuomo on a regular basis was throwing softballs down the center of the plate for him. They were talking about Sunday dinner and the meatballs we have together. Hey, and mommy said this and daddy said that and hey. And, you know, I was watching at the time, I know many of you were, and we're like, you're supposed to be CNN, you're supposed to do news and hold people accountable and check power. Instead, they have a brother with his brother yucking it up as this guy's making horrendous decisions. So David Sirota has an a interesting new report on this, exposed 
Ted Cruz and other GOP senators slamming Cuomo on nursing home policy actually copied and pasted Cuomo's nursing home immunity law word for word into their own legislation, and conservative media refuses to mention this. Wow. Okay, so let me explain what that means. So Andrew Cuomo made this horrendous decision, led to a tremendous number of deaths. The media was not, uh, you know, was doing propaganda for him at a time when they should have been ripping him. Andrew Cuomo, on top of lying about the numbers, was behind the scenes threatening people. He was threatening another New York lawmaker, Ron Kim, because Ron Kim was trying to blow the whistle on this. He called him to threaten him and say, you know, basically like, hey, if you keep coming after me, your career is done, son. Insane. He was acting like a mafia boss. Now, right-wing media picked up on this because they could go after Cuomo by talking about this stuff. So they were covering it before anybody else. But guess what? They completely and utterly omitted this basic fact, that Republican lawmakers took word for word his immunity coverage for nursing homes and, and put it in their own bills. So as they're slamming Cuomo, they're doing the exact same policy prescriptions as him. And right-wing media never mentions that part. So everybody thinks, oh, it's Cuomo, and it's only Cuomo who's the bad guy. When this story shows, all of them are doing it. Why? Because they're all bought and owned by the industry. They all take money from the industry, so they're going to do what the industry wants. And that's the whole point of what's called the liability shield. Remember the big debate over the liability shield? They wanted to protect businesses from lawsuits involving COVID. Now, if something happens, you catch at a facility, you can't sue over that. It's on you. And it was this nursing home immunity, nursing home protection was like, hey, if we make bad decisions and people die, go fuck yourself. We're protected by the law. And that's what happens when you pay your bribe. So now there's a Justice Department investigation into Andrew Cuomo. Um, and we'll see what ends up happening with that. I hope they throw the book at him. But just remember, guys, remember. There are no good guys in this story, because if the Republicans were actually, you know, correct about this, they wouldn't have copied his language and they wouldn't have followed in his footsteps and they wouldn't have advocated for the exact same policies. But they do do that. They do. Because really, they're all bought and owned by the industry. But this shows you corporate Democrats are not your friend and Republicans are not your friend. And um, you could see the negative consequences of corruption and bad public policy. And you know what? hell of a lot of people died as a result of these decisions. And every subsequent decision was equally disastrous. So that's the reality of the situation. It's incredibly ugly, and you're not going to get the full picture almost anywhere. So credit to David Sirota. Okay. Now, when everything is broke, we move along. All right, now we're going to talk about the Tom Cotton and Mitt Romney story, their policy that they proposed. All right, here we go. We finally have the details on the Mitt Romney, Tom Cotton minimum wage policy. They just released it. New, Mitt Romney and Tom Cotton roll out a plan to raise the federal minimum wage to $10 per hour incrementally over five years tied to mandatory E-Verify for employers and stricter penalties for hiring people here illegally. So, um, you know, we knew based on the previous leak that they were going to tie it to immigration. That's exactly what they did with the E-Verify thing. 
but I actually gave them too much credit. I sort of assumed that they would raise it to $12 an hour. That's what I thought, because the Democrats are saying 15. Um, so, you know, 12 bucks is what the Democrats were calling for four years ago, eight years ago, whatever it was. So I thought, yeah, they'll probably propose 12. Um, no, they didn't even do that. And it's even worse than that because they want to raise it to $10 an hour and they want to do that over a five-year period. Now, I believe the $15 minimum wage incremental implementation is over a five-year period, but at least it gets to 15 over a five-year period. They want to get it to 10 over a five-year period. That's beyond pathetic. It's beyond pathetic. Why not just say, like right now, the federal minimum wage is $7.25. Why not say, hey, let's raise it to $7.26 over a 10-year period? Because the most important point is, this is what you have to take away from this story. They want to raise the minimum wage from not a living wage to still not a living wage. Guys, in Tom Cotton's home state, Arkansas, the minimum wage is, I think, $11 an hour. So he wants to raise the federal minimum wage to less than what the minimum wage is in his own state of Arkansas. And by the way, Arkansas, very rural state, you know, um, and so... If any state would have an incentive to keep it low, because not as much capital in this state, you would think it's probably Arkansas. But Arkansas's minimum wage is $11 an hour. I mean, it honestly is incredible. This is honestly incredible. And there's an argument to be made that implementing this policy is worse than doing nothing. You want to know why? Because if you do this, you raise it to $10 an hour, tied to inflation or median wage growth, what happens is you can never revisit the issue because you have the built-in increases in the wage. Because again, you tied it to you know, median wage increase or inflation. Now, so it'll go up steadily, but it will keep going up and it will never be a living wage. It'll never get to a living wage level. So in other words, you waste political capital, you can never revisit the issue, and you still don't have a living wage. I would vote no on this in an instant. I'd vote no on this in an instant. And I love how they just sort of made up the number. Not to say 15 isn't made up. kind of is. But at least in some states, maybe most states, it would be a living wage. With this, it's not. It's not. So really what we should be doing is looking at the research, talking to experts and economists, and, uh, you know, the idea that I floated before on this show is that I think the best compromise is to do a living wage law. And, and you do a federal law that makes it a living wage county by county or voting district by voting district. So, in other words, in a situation like that, yes, you might have the minimum wage in Arkansas is $11 because they've determined that's a living wage there. But it might be in New York it's $23 or $24 because that might be what a living wage is there. And so you have, you know, the different levels across the country, and I think that would – um, almost guarantee that you don't have any increase in unemployment. You know, like there is a little bit of a concern that even with 15, you might have a slight uptick in unemployment. I think it's negligible. And I think there are other ways to address it, like subsidies or tax credits or whatever. Um, but I do think if you do it that way, it would work out better across the board. I don't think they're going to do that. But the thing that concerns me is I think that with the Democrats saying 15, the Republicans now saying 10, you're going to have the so-called moderate Democrats who are really just 
moderate Republicans, people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, they're going to come into the discussion and drop another number on us. We'll get to that in a little bit. I fear that what is going to happen is either no minimum wage increase or one that's not a living wage, not even close to a living wage, and it's tied to inflation or median wage growth, and then we perpetually forever have a minimum wage that's not a living wage, which I think is incredibly exploitative. I do. I think if you work full-time, you should make enough money to survive, full stop. And I find it difficult to wrap my mind around the fact that anybody disagrees with that. If you work full-time, you should make enough money to survive. That's it. Period. And we don't have that situation right now. And every time I read about the minimum wage, it's always amazing to look at the numbers. So if you had it tied to inflation, it would be over $20 an hour right now. No, I'm sorry. That's tied to productivity. If you tied to productivity, it would be over $20 an hour right now. If you just kept it the same as it was equal to $1968, I think it'd be between 10 and 12 right now. So it wasn't a living wage back then, but just keeping it the same as it was in 1968, if you had tied it to inflation, it'd be 10 to $12 today. Um, there's a whole bunch of wild facts like that. And I don't think this is a serious proposal. I don't think they're having a serious conversation. I think they're still siding with the business owners. And this will be, or big corporations, I should say, this would be a move that would waste political capital and still not get us to a living wage. And then we could never revisit the issue. So I say hell no to it. Hell no to it. It's 15 an hour or it's living wage per county or that's it. Um, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't bend on 10 or 12 or whatever because, again, it would still not be a living wage, and then we can never revisit the issue because they're going to tie it to something, meaning wage growth or inflation. So this is a joke of a proposal. It's comical. The fact that Tom Cotton's home state minimum wage is higher than it says everything you need to know. The phase in over five years for a $10 per hour minimum wage, it's a joke. It's beyond a joke. Okay, now let's go to Joe Manchin and what he supports in the minimum wage debate. Joe Manchin has revealed what he supports in the minimum wage debate. CNN is going to weigh in on that. And uh, one of the panelists here sort of wrecks everybody in a debate on the minimum wage. minimum wage as part of the $1.9 trillion relief package, but he would support $11 or, or maybe a smidge more. How much of a chance does this have of getting through, assuming we have the Senate parliamentarian issue aside, whether or not it can be included in this type of bill, but assuming it can, is that the type of thing that it could get 50 Democratic votes? Certainly. I think leaving aside, to your point, the parliamentarian issue, which we'll see what happens in the next two days, whether any minimum wage could be a part of it. But for Joe Manchin, he's really playing dealmaker here. He has asserted himself in a way that, yes, he was always kind of that figure who could make or break a deal, but he is now potentially taking down two of Joe Biden's nominees and trying to cut a deal here on minimum wage. I do think if he can get Kirsten Cinema on board, 
the other moderate uh, Democrat who's been skeptical of a $15 minimum wage, there could be a deal here, and that could actually kind of appease some of the progressives who are adamant that this should be included. It is going to be something that we're going to be watching very closely in the coming days. And, Errol, I mean, Joe Biden um, had signaled that he wasn't, it wasn't his way or the highway when it came to $15 an hour minimum wage. I mean, this might just be the happy medium that people have been looking for. It, it would be a shame if that were the case. I mean, folks, your, view, your viewers should keep in mind, um, uh, Allison, that when they say $15 minimum wage, they're not talking about enacting that this year or even next year or even the year after. It's supposed to ramp up over a period of years, and it's not going to be indexed to inflation, which, by the way, are major mistakes, and this is why this question comes up over and over again. Um, they're, they're talking about phasing it in by, I think, 2025 or something. And for Joe Manchin to say even that's too quick, even that's, you know, too much, in a state that he represents and the dire poverty in, in sections of that state is really shameful. I mean, if they can uh, have a hearing where they maybe try and bring some of these senators to their senses, about well, what's really needed uh, by people who are struggling, who are working every day and still staying poor, um, perhaps they can adjust the, the conversation. Perhaps the, com uh, the, the, the compromise can be more like, okay, we'll, we'll take our time and we'll phase it in a little bit slower. But, my goodness, people have got to be able to make a living wage. I think that's what the election in part was about, and that's how the American people voted. That is exactly correct. Every poll shows overwhelming support for raising the minimum wage. And, uh, you know, a majority of people support that $15 number as well. I think the most recent poll I saw was 55%. And this is even after you've now had, uh, you know, a backlash and some counter-propaganda against it, you still have 55% of the country supporting a $15 minimum wage. So I love that last guy there came in like a wrecking ball and just obliterated everybody in his sight. And he was like, listen, this is ridiculous. Uh, people need to be able to make a living wage. They need to be able to make a living wage. It's that simple. Um, all the other panelists, I mean, it's classic, like, D.C. conventional wisdom bubble brain that they have because look at how they talk about this thing. They're like, oh, Joe Manchin is playing deal maker, and any raise of the minimum wage is going to appease the progressives. And then one person says, oh, you know, $11, which is what Manchin supports. Maybe that's, quote, the happy medium. Look at how casual they discuss this when what we're talking about is raising the minimum wage from not a living wage to still not a living wage. Oh, I'm sorry. Were you unable to survive before? What if we raise the wage and you're still not able to survive? Would that shut you up? Isn't that the happy medium? I don't need to find a happy medium between bad policy and good policy to get half bad policy. I don't need to find the happy medium there. I'm simply in favor of the good policy, as everybody should be. But look at how they talk about it. It's framed more through, like, the horse race wheeling and dealing perspective of, like, let's see what's going on in Washington, D.C. Here are the positions of them. Talk about the subs of how lives would improve with the living wage. Talk about how many people are lifted out of poverty. You know, this is what the real conversation should be. By the way, number I learned just this week. Did you know that in West Virginia, for a single person with no kids to survive, the living wage is between $14 and $15 an hour? So Joe Manchin chimes in and says, nah, 15 is too much for West Virginia. Well, let's make it 11. But the numbers show for a single person with no kids to survive, you need between $14 and $15 an hour to make it. By the way, there was a, you know, an event recently where 
working people and union folks from West Virginia were begging Joe Manchin, come on, we need $15 an hour. I mean, again, the real extremist position, the real radical position is to say, let's raise the minimum wage from not a living wage to still not a living wage, and let's tie to inflation or tie to median wage growth, and then we can never revisit the issue, and it's always going to be below a living wage. That I find totally unacceptable. So listen, this is why you need not only Democrats and um, lefties who are correct on the issue, but this is why the fight is super important. And Joe Biden has showed and indicated that this is not one of the things he's willing to go to the mat for. He's not willing to go to the mat for a $15 minimum wage. And that's a huge problem, man. Because listen, as of right now, Joe Biden has a 62% approval rating, according to one poll. In other words, he's in the honeymoon phase of his presidency. Joe Biden will never have a higher approval rating the rest of his life than he does right now. So you know what that means? You have political capital to spend. And if you have that political capital, whatever you focus on now, whatever you exert pressure on now, that's the thing that's most likely to succeed and most likely to pass. So if Joe Biden said, no, I'm not bending on this. We're doing the $1.9 trillion um, COVID bill. The $15 minimum wage is going to be in that. And Joe Manchin, you're going to vote for it or else Joe Manchin would be forced to vote for it. Because you know what? Joe Biden, for all of his flaws, is a lot more popular than Joe Manchin. And Joe Biden can go do rallies in West Virginia and can go talk about how I'm fighting for you to raise your wages. You know who's not Joe Manchin. So would you look at that? I guess we're going to have a primary race against Joe Manchin. I guess we have a new up-and-coming Democrat who we're going to throw all of our resources behind and who I'm going to campaign for. And then you make Joe Manchin heal. There's an interesting story about Joe Manchin, and I learned this a couple months ago, but Apparently, now he supported, I believe it was Kavanaugh, right? Um, And everybody's like, well, what the fuck? Why is he doing that? There was a poll that came out in West Virginia, which basically said, it was an internal poll with the Manchin people, basically said no uncertain terms. If you, Joe Manchin, support Brett Kavanaugh, you'll win re-election. If you don't support Brett Kavanaugh, you won't. That's what the numbers showed. Now, I don't like that fact, but it's a fact. So what did Joe Manchin do? He supported Brett Kavanaugh. So Joe Manchin is one of these guys, although he's deeply corrupt and he's a corporatist and all that stuff. He is one of these guys who does this. Where's the wind blowing? What do I have to do to save my ass? And so if he feels like to save my ass, I have to vote for the $15 minimum wage. I have to vote for the $1.9 trillion relief package. You know, if he felt like to save my ass, I have to vote for Medicare for all. I think we could get Joe Manchin to bend and do it. I think we can. Because that's what that Brett Kavanaugh story tells me, that... This is a big thing to Joe Manchin. So if Joe Biden were to exert pressure and he were to fight and he were to go to the mat for higher wages, we would get higher wages. And you know what? Flip side of that is true, too. If he doesn't go to the mat and we don't get it, it's his fucking fault. So I need you to know that in advance. I'm telling you this in advance before we have the vote on the $1.9 trillion package. I'm telling you the dynamic in advance. So don't listen to CNN. Oh, Joe, Joe Manchin is playing dealmaker. This will appease the progressives if you raise it to any number. It's the happy medium to do $11 or $12 an hour. In West Virginia, you need $15 to survive as a single person with no kids. $15 is a living wage in most states, um, and $11 is a living wage in probably none of the states. I mean, maybe there's a handful that it is, but listen, unacceptable. Unacceptable. You should refuse to waste political capital. Because that's what it is. It's wasting political capital.
still not get a living wage, and then we can never revisit the issue. So I say hell no, and I vote hell no on this, and I would use every tool in my toolkit to try to get Joe Manchin to fall in line. I'd have to do it. I have to do it. But again, I don't think uh, Biden's going to go to the mat for this, and that's a real shame. And so many lives are going to be affected negatively as a result of folding on this. And again, it doesn't have to be this way. It doesn't have to be this way. What we need is a president who's willing to fight and Joe Manchin to heal. Same with Kirsten Cinema, by the way. I would do anything and everything to make them fall in line. I would exert all the political pressure that I have. And right now, Biden has that ability because he has such a high approval rating. So he needs to throw his weight around a little bit. I doubt he's going to do it, and that's a tragedy. Okay. All right, let me take a quick break. When we come back, um, Biden's pick for Health and Human Services supports Medicare for All. We're going to talk about him and Fox News' response. Stay right there.
We are back, bitch. We are back, bitch. Okay. All right, let's see what the lazy propagandists are up to. The lazy propagandists over at Fox News who make a living off of being douchebags. Okay. Fox News covered Biden's pick for Health and Human Services. Um, Now, in my opinion, this guy is one of Biden's best picks because he supports Medicare for All. And he's actually been a pretty aggressive advocate for Medicare for All. So look at that. Good on Joe for picking somebody decent for Health and Human Services. Look at what they have to say about him on Fox News. Javier spent a career fighting to expand access to health care, reducing racial health disparities, protecting the Affordable Care Act, and take on powerful special interests to prey on profit off of people's health. So how is he going to help small business? How is he going to do it? He's focusing on, and uh, his other comment on race, on equity, and literally he says millions of small business owners are counting on us. Small business owners? What? <laughs> Small business owners are going broke. They almost went broke the first time under Obamacare, and expansion will make will ensure that fact. Now, he's the wrong person for the wrong job at the wrong time, and he can do a lot of damage. And he can do a lot of damage by redefining Medicare, for one, right in the middle of a pandemic. We used to say when you turn 62, there are certain benefits you waited your entire life for, and they're unique. And when you have Medicare for, as he said, for all, you have it for nobody. When you have Medicare for all, you have Medicare for nobody. I've been around a long time, man. I've been doing this show uh, full-time since late 2012, early 2013. Okay. I have never in that entire span from 2012 until now heard an argument dumber than this one, which has been repeated ad nauseum ad infinitum. Medicare for all is Medicare for nobody. I'm reminded of that gift that has like the, the, the girl like, woman confused looking around and you see like all these equations popping up around her face like what medicare for all is medicare for nobody so by expanding medicare to everybody you're actually doing the opposite and taking it away from everybody that's like saying canada has universal health care and it's universal for nobody actually nobody has health care there Everybody does have health care, though. In every other developed country, there's one version or another of universal health care. You can't just assert that by doing universal coverage, you actually have the opposite and nobody has coverage. But they do. They do. And what this tells me, guys, is they're lazy propagandists. They're barely even trying. They've had it so easy for so long 
that they didn't have to sharpen their rhetorical skills and their debate skills and come up with plausible-sounding arguments. You want to know why? Because there's an entire giant industry behind this propaganda and this notion that, you know, the for-profit health insurance companies are good and necessary and important and can't be messed with. And so when you have Humana and Aetna and Blue Cross Blue Shield and all of these companies spending so much money on, on uh, lobbying Congress and having such a grip on the system, they've gotten lazy. They've gotten lazy, and so their propagandists are shitty. All this, you couldn't come up with a better argument all this fucking time. You couldn't come up with a better argument than Medicare for all is actually Medicare for nobody. By giving it to everybody, you're giving it to nobody. I, I, I seriously am floored. I'm never going to get over how terrible an argument that is. Because it's not even an argument. It's just asserting that by having universal health care, we have non-universal health care. And in fact, we take it away from everybody. Okay, so a few points there. They're mocking this idea that, like, Biden and this guy would help small business, right? And, but the funny thing is, again, they're so lazy. It doesn't take that long when you research this topic to find out very quickly that, yes, the best case scenario for small businesses in the United States of America is if we had a Medicare for all system. Why? Because a lot of people get health care through their job, and the employer has to provide the health care. And so if you take this out of the private market, you take a giant burden off of every small business in this country. Do you not understand that? That like you, it's a giant headache to deal with health care for yourself and your employees. And then if you have Medicare for all, you remove that entire burden. You remove the entire burden. So it would be wonderful to do that. And yes, Medicare for all would help small businesses. Um, and then they mess up because he, he admits something there that if he thought about it, he would have never said this because there's the admission that's embedded in this is telling. He says, we all used to think that when you turn 62, there are benefits that you've waited your entire life for. And they just want to come along and give them to everybody. So wait, you, one of your arguments is that actually universal health care, Medicare for all is terrible and evil. And it would be bad and you wouldn't even like it. That's your argument most of the time. But right there you just admitted, hey, when you turn 62, there are benefits you've waited your entire life for. So it should be the moment of like, yes, I got my benefits finally at 62. This is great. So is it positive or negative that you get those benefits? Is it a good thing or a bad thing? Because half the time you say it's a bad thing, and you think Medicare for all provides worse quality care and all that shit, but you just admitted there that, like, it's actually like a party when you turn 62, and you're like, yes, I finally get these benefits, which are awesome. Which is it? Are they awesome, or are they terrible? Again, they have a giant problem. They're actually losing the messaging war now. They've been so lazy for so long, and there's such a giant industry behind trying to fight Medicare for all and crush Medicare for all. But like, again, they haven't had to actually engage in this fight for the longest time. Well, now we have a strong pro Medicare for all movement and they have no counter arguments. Forget counter arguments. They have no arguments arguments. They have no good points. And so, yes, we run circles around them 24 seven when we talk about, you know, the best healthcare system. 
but to this point, they've simply coasted off the fact that they have all the institutional power and money. So we need to chip away at that. But like, again, you can see very clearly based off all the talking points here, it's built on a foundation of quicksand. The whole system, their whole argument is built on a foundation of quicksand. They got nothing, man. They got nothing. And when it comes to changing people's minds, I can guarantee you, you go, don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody's word for it. You go look at the studies. Go look at the studies, the Commonwealth Fund study that ranks the healthcare systems around the world. And one of the most more recent studies, they do it every couple of years or something. But we ranked 11, 11th out of 11. So we did study 10, 11 healthcare systems. We were dead last, dead last. And of course, the best, best systems in the world all the time when they rank them, they're universal healthcare systems, single payer healthcare systems. So, I mean, what else is there to say? They're lazy in their attacks. And I will end on this point. I wish the Joe Biden that existed is the Joe Biden that they think exists. You know, I wish the, the fact that Joe Biden picked this guy to lead health and human services, I wish that that was an indication that Joe Biden secretly supported Medicare for all. He doesn't. He doesn't. Um, and this guy, you know, will be restricted in some ways from doing the stuff that he wants to do, that he's on the record of calling for. Um, but I wish the Fox News version of Joe Biden was correct, because then Joe Biden would be the biggest badass in the world. Unfortunately, that's not the reality. Joe Biden is a lot more like a moderate Republican than they like to give credit for. Um, but this shows you what the opposition is made of in this discussion on Medicare for all. They misstate basic facts. They don't get anything right. They pretend like there's no benefit for small businesses to do this. Um, they say Medicare for all is Medicare for none. It's honestly embarrassing. It's truly embarrassing that anybody could fall for these arguments. Okay, next. Fox News really dropped a bomb on us here. One of the hosts is going to argue in favor of recreational drug use and even in favor of recreational hard drug use. This is fascinating. This is based off of a story about the wonderful Dr. Carl Hart, who's an expert on substances. Take a look at this. A Columbia professor who says he snorts heroin and takes other substances is calling for the legalization of all recreational drugs. Carl Hart also chairs the school's prestigious psychology department. He wrote this in a new book. There aren't many things in life that I enjoy more than a few lines by the fireplace at the end of the day. My heroin use is as recreational as my alcohol use. Heroin is one of the tools that I use to maintain my work-life balance. Kat Temp, Fox News analyst, Fox Nation host. Kat, your reaction to this? Look, I think hearing an Ivy League professor say, hey, I do heroin, 
it. It's obviously something that people are going to be shocked by and have this collective gasp. But honestly, I think that the more important thing to talk about rather than his heroin use is some of the policy ideas that he's discussing, which are things I happen to completely agree with. Personally, I don't do heroin. But the fact that he does heroin also doesn't affect me. He says in this country, we are supposed to have the right to make whatever choices we want to make for our own lives as long as they don't interfere with other people's rights to do the same. Uh, and I completely agree with that. And he also points out the fact that the vast majority of overdose deaths in the United States are from illicit substances and that a lot of harm can be reduced by legalization and regulation, which is also something that I agree with. So it doesn't bother you that he's talking about that illicit drug use, so in, in a way that you know has an outreach to his students. I mean, you say it doesn't affect anybody, but everybody knows it. You don't think it has an effect. Heroin, well, listen, heroin obviously can lead to addiction, obviously can lead to death, but the, the truth is, so can alcohol. For some people, so can food. Um, I think that it's, it's, it's something that obviously is going to be shocking. It's a choice that is far different uh, from the one that I would ever make, but I think that talking about the fact that it's pretty crazy that for being possession of this substance, you could go to jail, that I think is something we should be talking about. And I think we should be trying to not focus so much on the shock value of what he's saying and more on some of the policies that he's proposing, which I think, as a libertarian, as someone who believes in small government, are certainly things we should consider. That segment was awesome because one of the Fox hosts was expecting commentary in the other direction. She was expecting commentary of, like, this is wrong and bad and it's a terrible role model for the kids and he should probably stop it and this should be illegal and maybe he should be locked up. That's what the host was expecting. And the guest was like, eh, I'm more libertarian-leaning than you and I wouldn't do heroin, but what are you going to do? It is what it is and maybe it's not all that bad. You know what I'm saying? Whoa. Okay, so that was probably one of the most interesting Fox segments I've ever seen. Um, I'm... I'm sure there were some people in the control room listening and going like, what? <laughs> Come again? We're defending recreational heroin use on Fox News? That's a thing now? That's what's happening. I think that's incredible. So, now, by the way, I'm very excited to announce that uh, not this week, but the week after, Dr. Carl Hart will be on Crystal Kyle and Friends, and we'll be talking to him for an extended period of time. I'm really excited about that because there's so much I want to talk to him about. He's an expert on substance use. I want to talk about substances I've used in my life, ask him about substances he's used in his life, and, you know, tap into that expertise and see what's going on. So I'm really excited that I can announce that, you know, in this segment now. Um, but what he's doing is he's actually busting up a lot of the myths around drug use. So he's an Ivy League professor. This is a brilliant person. This is a genius. And he's like, yeah, I do recreational heroin from time to time. Now, he says he snorts it. He doesn't inject it. Um, but, he, you know, I think he said, like, by the fire at night, like, I'll do it and read a book or something, or I'll do it and just relax. And, you know, again, what this shows is in the same way that people can recreationally drink alcohol and the overwhelming majority of people are okay when, with doing that, you can do that with other substances, too. Now, that's not to say that there's, you know, not varying degrees of how addictive they are and how good for you and bad for you they are. I think, all, I think there's a spectrum on all that stuff. But the underlying principle is the same across the board. And the underlying principle is what the libertarian guest was pointing out there, which is like, hey, 
you're a free adult. You should be able to do whatever you want with your own body as long as you're not hurting anybody else. And that fits that principle 100%. And the most important point is overdose deaths are way more often linked to illegal substances on the black market that are cut with all sorts of bullshit. So the problem is because the drugs are illegal, there are more deaths associated with the drugs. If the drugs were legal, taxed, and regulated, you wouldn't have nearly as many deaths. I mean, it used to be the case you can go to like a pharmacy and pick up some heroin or morphine because it's fundamentally like the same substance. You used to be able to do that. You used to be able to just go to the pharmacy and just get some heroin. There used to be opium dens across this country. And when you look at the history of it, it's actually tied to racial resentment as to why the opium dens were eventually banned. Because you had white people thought that their daughters would go hang out with the Asian folks at the opium dens, and so they wanted to ban it and criminalize that sort of lifestyle to protect what they viewed as you know, their daughters and their property. So again, you go read the history of the drug war in this country, and it is deeply tied to racial resentment. It absolutely is. There's no doubt about it. I mean, look at the quote. There was a, a famous quote that came out a few years back, maybe five years or so ago, from um, one of Nixon's aides. And they admitted it. They admitted it behind the scenes. Like, yeah, the reason why we're doing the drug war is that we got to criminalize the lifestyle. We got to criminalize the black lifestyle and the hippie white lifestyle because these aren't our voters. These aren't the people who support us. So what if we criminalize that lifestyle and lock up as many of them as we can? So it's basically like these are political prisoners. These are political prisoners who were caught with substances. Listen, it's time. I agree with Dr. Carhart 100%. It is time to not only legalize recreational marijuana, I'm sorry, I go beyond that just like he does. I think we need to legalize, tax, and regulate all of these substances. And then what you'll find is a giant decrease in deaths across the board associated with this stuff, without a doubt. All the societal ills, crime will go down, uh, overdose deaths will go down. Any objective way of measuring it, you're going to see it improves. In some places around the world, if you have drugs, and you fear like it might be tainted, you could actually go for free to check how pure your drug is. And that alone would also decrease overdose deaths because again, most of the overdose deaths are because the drugs are bought on the black market and they're cut with all sorts of dangerous bullshit. When you have more of the pure substances, it's less likely that you're gonna get an overdose death. You know, one of the things that's been a problem recently is heroin cut with fentanyl. Fentanyl is way more powerful than heroin so if you're doing what somebody would view as their normal dose of heroin and it has the fentanyl in it, they could die. In fact, there's speculation that might be how Philip Seymour Hoffman died. But again, the solution is what? The solution is let's have it so people could check the potency of it and how pure it is. And that alone would also decrease the overdose deaths. So there's a lot of solutions on this stuff that's counterintuitive. People will hear that and say, ah, you're incentivizing the drug use or it's bad for reason X, Y, or Z. You're really not. The drug use exists. It's going to exist no matter what. Do you want to make it more dangerous or less dangerous? That's the question. And also, not many people will, will concede the point that Dr. Carl Hart is most convinced on, and he's correct about this, which is you can, yeah, there are people who recreationally do even hard drugs. I mean, I remember my friend's father uh, is a doctor, and he traveled one time to Europe, and he gave a, he gave a, a talk about one of the you know, fields of medicine that he's an expert in, and there were, I think it was French doctors who came up to him after and casually floated, would you like to come and do some heroin with us? And he was like, 
what? <laughs> you know, that's not something you hear every day, right? So this guy was floored by it, but he was telling us the story years later. He's like, yeah, I mean, there's just a totally different attitude towards all these different substances in different countries. And, you know, in a weird way, if you think about it, the United States in many ways is a hyper-individualistic society obsessed with freedom. But in this narrow way, the culture is the exact opposite, and it's very draconian and authoritarian and punitive, and it's time to change that and roll that back, and nothing but credit to Dr. Carl Hart, an Ivy League professor, a man who's a genius, who's busting up all these myths, and really explaining that the problem, it, it, it has a hell of a lot more to do with socioeconomics, class, race, um, criminal justice system. Like, there's a lot of other problems that make it look, are masked as a drug problem, right? So this is a field where he's brilliant. It's amazing now. We're having, we're, we just watched a segment on Fox News where there was, somebody was advocating for recreational heroin use. It's not going to get any weirder than that, man. That's as weird as it gets, but I'll welcome it. Okay, next. This quote that I'm about to share with you is, uh, I think it's absolutely infuriating. Liz Cheney has become a bit of a rising star. I hate that terminology, but... uh, in the Republican Party because she bucked Trump and was basically like, hey, trying to do a coup is bad. And so corporate media was like, oh, yes. Oh, what a leader. She says doing coups is bad. Yes, better than other Republicans. So now like the anti-Trump variety of Republicans, she's one of the leaders of this strain of thought within the Republican Party in the same way that like Mitt Romney is. Um, so she's been getting a lot of positive press. Well, I'm here to remind you, Liz Cheney is still Liz Cheney. So Liz Cheney, just now on isolationism in U.S. foreign policy, quote, these ideas are just as dangerous today as as when they were in 1940, when isolationists launched the America First movement to appease Hitler and prevent America from aiding Britain in the fight against the Nazis. That's a stunning quote. She's saying... For all the people out there today advocating, we need to get out of Iraq, we need to get out of Afghanistan, what are we still doing there? We have a May timeline of withdrawal for Afghanistan. We should stick to that. For people who bring that up, she's comparing them to Nazi appeasers. By the way, isolationist, which is a pejorative term, we can come back to that in a second, isolationist or not, the war against Hitler was just It was defensive in nature. He declared war on us. He declared war on us. So, yes, even people who are non-interventionists, which is how I would classify myself, to do self-defense is not a violation of non-interventionist principles. That's a just war. But listen, keep it real, man. After World War II, how many of these wars that we've been engaged in are absolutely necessary? Next to none of them, if not none of them. Maybe there's a handful you can point to that were like, yeah, I see that one. But almost all of them, if not all of them, 
are not defensive in nature. And I think you're, I think you're just a liar if you say they are. Not only is it like a misunderstanding or just a difference of opinion. No, you're a liar if you think that a lot of these wars that we've done are defensive in nature post-World War II. So, listen, I'm an interventionist. I would have fought World War II in a second. Fuck, sign me up, man. Dying for a cause that's as just as that. Those people are fucking heroes. They're heroes. But how the fuck do you conflate Afghanistan, Iraq, any of the modern fights that we have going on? or wars of aggression that we have going on. How do you conflate that with fighting Hitler? Are you kidding me? The Taliban is not an imminent threat to the United States like Adolf Hitler was. Al-Qaeda isn't even that. And by the way, if we really did believe that that was the case, we would stop arming and funding Saudi Arabia, who turns around and funds Al-Qaeda on the ground in Yemen, and who funds jihadist forces on the ground in Syria to fight back against Bashar Assad. I mean, it was General Petraeus a few years back who floated the idea of arming Al-Qaeda because Al-Qaeda was going to fight ISIS. So don't give me this nonsense of like, you know, it's, there's some sort of imminent threat of attack. No, we're the aggressor. I'm sorry. North Korea, we're the aggressor. Iran, we're the aggressor. Iraq, Afghanistan, we're the aggressor. We are the sole superpower in the world. We're the imperialist nation. We do go around the world bullying different countries to get our way, and we care about the geopolitical chessboard. We want to make sure we keep China and Russia in check. And so we act like a thug on the international stage. Don't act like that's not the case. That is very clearly the case. And then there are the other aspects of war, which is it's very profitable for a small number of people. The military-industrial complex is a real thing. Don't take my word for it. Take Smedley Butler's word for it. Take Dwight Eisenhower's word for it. A lot of people make money from this. There are jobs in every state tied to the military-industrial complex. Every single state. In this country, our welfare is warfare. You know, we arm vicious, brutal regimes all across the world. There's a lot of money made there. And then on top of that, the natural resources, oil in Iraq, opium and and trillions in mineral wealth in Afghanistan. These things play a factor. Is it the sole factor? Probably not. But it's definitely a big factor. And so, I mean, I just... Imagine comparing people who want to get out of Iraq and Afghanistan to Nazi appeasers. Nazi appeasers. I mean, that's just a gross misrepresentation. And, okay, so now let's get back to that isolationism point that I touched on before. Whenever you hear somebody use isolationism, just understand they're a neocon war hawk and they're trying to um, use a pejorative term to put you down. Because isolationism it has a negative connotation to it because not only does isolationism sound like, hey, let's mind our business, isolationism sounds like under no circumstance should we break free from that. It's almost like pacifism, like even if we're under attack, we still want to stay isolated. But it also sounds like there's trade implications and diplomacy implications of like, we put your middle finger up to everybody else, go fuck yourself in every way. It has a negative feel to it, okay? The honest conversation is more about non-interventionism. What I described before, we just don't do any illegal and offensive wars. That's it. The only time we use the military is for defense for our country. That's the position that we call the duh position that everybody casually agrees with when you do polling on this. But they can't be, they have to poison the well up front. They have to make you seem toxic and insane up front. So what do they do? They use a pejorative term, isolationist, and then they say, um, it's just as dangerous to want to get out of Iraq and Afghanistan today you're just like the Nazi appeasers. Utter nonsense, man. It's complete nonsense. In fact, the evidence is in the other direction, that we are more likely to have some sort of an attack here because we are over there. 
Absolutely. And the CIA even admits this. There's a term called blowback that they use. The unintended consequences of an interventionist foreign policy. So, you know, you could argue the exact opposite of what she's saying, but it does show you how grotesque she is and how big of a smear merchant she is. That this is how low she's willing to go, and she won't have an honest conversation about this. She won't really debate the merits of various forms of intervention. She's for it no matter what. No matter what. She never met a war she didn't like. Just like Dick Cheney, her daddy. Just like Bill Kristol and David Frum and all these idiots that are now anti-Trump resistance heroes. They never met a war they didn't like. They never met a war they didn't like. So... Forgive me if I'm not hopping on board with the media and portraying her as some sort of hero. She's not a hero. She's still wrong on virtually everything. Congrats on getting one very tiny thing right. The coups are bad. Okay. Next. Congrats to Dave Rubin on making the show again. This is, you know, he's made it a number of times in recent days. I think he's getting more and more ridiculous. He's gone full religious fundamentalist. Take a look. I think that that is the flaw of liberalism. I, I, I sent a long Twitter, uh, Twitter thread about this about two weeks ago. That liberals tend to think that everything can be decided by logic and reason alone. Uh, this, by the way, was very much a, uh, a point that Jordan Peterson and Sam Harris had those live debates about, where they were basically, Sam was taking the position that the human mind and logic and reason are sort of enough to organize society, and Jordan's argument was there is something beneath that. In this case, his belief was that this, these were religious stories, that there are eternal truths. I have come to believe that, man. I, I wrote about it in the book. I, I think that liberalism in and of itself is not enough. Just logic and reason is not the driver of societies. Yes, it might be the driver of you as the individual, but it is not the ultimate organizing factor. It is a factor, not the factor. So I would say when you, when you constantly, no matter how much the enemy is attacking, if your argument is, oh, but if we just reason with them, and I think a lot of liberals really struggle with this, right? They come from Harvard. They come from these places of higher education that in many ways are, are no longer anything close to that. When they're confronting with it, it's such an affront to their worldview that, that logic and reason and science and math are all the things that you need. And I think there's something else that you need. I think that there is a bedrock of truth beneath us. I think our founders understood that, which is why we have God-given rights. But they didn't, they didn't give us the rights. The government did not make me free. God made me free. And we, and we can have all sorts of debates about what that means, what, what the definition of God is and all of that. And believe me, I saw Jordan get asked this question a million times. Um, but, but I think that that has led liberalism into the sort of dead end that it feels that it's in right now. And it's why they have no mood against the woke. I told you guys, it has become a law of nature that every Dave Rubin rant ends with, wokeness is really bad, bro. 
wokeness is like so bad. I'm against the woke. Are you against the woke? I'm against the woke. Stupid social justice warriors. So dumb. Like, it doesn't matter what the topic is. He always comes back to wokeness bad, social justice warriors bad. I believe in free speech, bro. Do you believe in free speech? I believe in free speech, bro. Do you believe in free speech? I believe in free speech, bro. I believe in free speech. Like, you have, like, three points you make over and over and over. Now, listen, I'm not criticizing. My arsenal is limited as well. But at least I'm talking about, like, fucking economics and healthcare and war and shit that matters. This guy, oh my God, it's so frustrating to watch. So he's, liberalism to dead end, and they have no arguments against the woke. I know plenty of people who are on the left and are nominally like anti-woke, although I hate using their terminology in this conversation. There's plenty of people like that. In fact, most serious thinkers don't spend too much time thinking about only the culture war social issues garbage. I view that all as largely a distraction from the real divides in this society. The haves and the have-nots. You know, the elitists versus the populists. It's a class war. It's an economic war. That is far more important than the stupid culture war bullshit that these guys love. Um, So, listen, there's no other way to describe it. He went full religious fundamentalist. He said... You know, the problem with liberals is they think they can solve everything with logic and reason alone. Anytime you're doing commentary where you're trying to portray, like, logic and reason as not great, you might want to rethink it. You're going to sound like a doofus. And that's exactly what happens. Um, He says that he's come to believe in religious bedrock eternal truths that underlie all of society when you look around the world and you look at the countries that are governed first and foremost primarily on this bedrock truth of religious principles, which countries are we talking about here? They're not the best, man. They're not the best. Theocracies don't fare too well in modern societies. In fact, in many ways, they're anathema to modern societies. So that really, really is not a good way of organizing a society. In fact, you can make the argument, um, some of the least religious countries in the world are the Scandinavian countries. Religiosity is really, really low in these places. Very few religious people in these places. And again, you, I'd argue they are doing better than pretty much everywhere else. So, I mean, again, just smugly asserting, like, you think you could solve everything with logic and reason alone? I'll tell you this, they may be um, tools that are incomplete, but they're for shit sure the best tools we got. And I don't want to rely on any sort of weird primitive intuitions that I dress up as like religious bedrock eternal truth. I don't trust what you think is religious bedrock eternal truth. Why should anybody trust me? There's thousands of religions that exist in the world. I'm supposed to believe some like gut feeling from some dipshit who I know nothing about? What a joke. He even goes as far as to make the, we have God-given rights, not government-given rights. Thank you very much. Oh, my God. Uh, Like, Dave, I get it. I want to put my arm around him and say, I get it, man. I get it. You're a little lost right now. You had your lane as, like, I'm the last liberal left, and you would say conservative shit. Now that's come to a close, and you've admitted multiple times now you're just a conservative 
See, now the problem is there's nothing unique about him. He can't say, I'm the liberal, he's with conservatives on everything. Now he's just a conservative commentator, and he's struggling. Because there are people who do the conservative nonsense way better than he'll ever do, you know? For all the problems and flaws, and I think Ben Shapiro was basically wrong about everything. But at least he has, like, the veneer of, like, I'm the quick-talking debate bro who will give you these talking points at 1,000 miles an hour. And he just fills that role so much better than Dave Rubin can ever fill that role. So he's confused, and he's looking for a path. And he seems to have settled on, like, a Jordan Peterson-type path. But Jordan Peterson is just way smarter than Dave Rubin. And so when he talks about these, like, religious concepts and, you know, he gets sufficiently woo-woo-y, he finds a way to make it through pure sophistry to make it sound interesting. Whereas Dave Rubin is just like, uh, logic and reason maybe aren't great and math and science. I don't even know. That's not enough. We got a religion or something, bro. We have God-given rights, not government-given rights. You know what I'm saying? I'm listening to it. It's like word salad. It's like playing Mad Libs with stupid, basic, conservative talking points. That's what I see when I hear Dave Rubin talk. But listen, he is lost. He's definitely lost. I guess he's trying to become somewhat of a religious voice now, too, or maybe trying to sprinkle in a dash of that, like, Jordan Peterson self-help guru stuff, but he's just not good at it, man. In fact, he's so bad at it, at it that he makes it sound like he's downplaying how important logic, reason, science, and math is, and he's playing up how great religious bedrock eternal truths are. What are those truths, Dave? You care to elaborate? What are these bedrock eternal religious truths that you're so in favor of? And why should I trust that one religion's bedrock truths are better than another's? You know, why should we organize a society around what you feel based on nothing but metaphysical nonsense is better? God, he's so bad. Hey, at least he's given us tremendous material, that's for sure. Okay. All right, let me take a final break real quick. When we come back, televangelist Rick Wilson. Wait, Rick Wilson? No, Rick Rick Wiles. What do I have? Uh, is that a typo or did my brain just shit the bed? No, it was my brain shitting the bed. Okay, when we come back, Rick Wiles is going to surprise the shit out of you. Homeboy got woke on economics for a split second. Stay right there.
right, y'all. We are back. We are back. Let's uh, let's talk about Rick Wiles. We go from Dave Rubin talking about uh, religious bullshit to a guy who normally talks religious bullshit maybe making the tiniest bit of sense. Not fully, but the tiniest bit. Okay, here we go. Let's do it. There's a televangelist by the name of Rick Wiles. We've talked about him a number of times on the show. Um, I've seen him described as an end times uh, commenter. So he's waiting on the apocalypse because he's such a religious fundamentalist that he's all in with it. So this guy shocked the shit out of me with what appears like a hard turn left. If somebody in America put together a political movement to do two main things, break up the power of the tech companies, I mean, bust them up, don't just slap their fingers, bust them up, break them up. Like the monopolies of the early 1900s. I mean, crush the tech companies, break them up, and to outlaw being billionaires. We've reached a point. I, I mean, I'm a free enterprise person, and and I I, I have no um, no ill will towards anybody in their financial success. I, I you want to be a zillionaire, You're a quazillionaire, I don't care. All right, you want to go buy a planet, go buy a planet. I don't care. But when you use your money and power to change my life, to take away my rights, to try to force things on me that I object to, that I find morally repulsive, when you try to restrict my free speech, when you try to promote population control, you want to pump vaccines into my body, when you want to change society, you know what? You're my enemy. You're my enemy. And the only way you're able to do it is because you're a billionaire. So then we need to take away your billions. Bill Gates, if he was working a job, seven to five, if he was going to work, like everybody else, Bill Gates wouldn't be doing this stuff, would he? No. He's only doing this stuff because he's a billionaire. Take his billions away. Take it away. We need to do it in this country. There needs to be a populist movement in this country. Let's break up the tech companies. Let's take the billions. Give the billion, give their, I want to take Bill Gates' billions and give it to the poor. I want to give it to the poor. I want to strip them, completely strip them and give it to the poor. I want Jack Dorsey's money. I want Zuckerberg's money. I want to give it to the poor. I don't want to give it to the government. Oh, my gosh. Tax them and, and, and the government get it? No, give it to the poor. Let's take their money and give it to the poor. Let's bust up their corporations. This country would change overnight. I might run in 2024. I might run on that platform. Take the money from the rich, give it to the poor. That might be my platform in 2024. It's a giving hood. Yes. I'm going to I'm going to bust up the tech companies. I'm going to take the money from the billionaires, give it to the poor. I might run in 2024 that platform. Wow. <laughs> Damn, son. Damn. I was not expecting that. Listen, credit where it's due. 
this is one of the first times I heard right-wing fundamentalist Christians actually sound the tiniest bit like the message that comes out of the New Testament in the Bible. Because the whole idea, yeah, just, you know, basically the message is, keep it real, fuck the rich, you know, camel has a better chance of getting through the eye of the needle than a rich person getting into heaven, and we love the poor. And he was just saying, like, what if I just took all their money and gave it to the poor? Yeah, I think that would be a Jesus-approved approach. <laughs> I do. And most of the time, these guys do not sound like this at all. You know, a, a lot of the right-wing fundamentalists um, seem to believe a little bit in the prosperity gospel, which is this goofy idea that Jesus is like pro-capitalism and wants you to personally get rich, and so therefore low taxes and all that nonsense. Damn Rick Wiles, surprising the shit out of all of us. Now, of course, since he's Rick Wiles, he couldn't get it all right. There were portions there where even I was like, eh. So uh, the one I'm thinking of is, he says, when you use your money and power to change my life, he's talking about billionaires here, good so far, you take away my rights, okay, still sort of with you, because you could argue that the way our economy functions, yeah, having a business owner and a boss who can sort of control your every move at work, that is kind of tyrannical, and that is sort of taking away your rights. Then he says, and try to force things on me, restrict my free speech, when they do population control and try to pump me full of vaccines, oh, okay, okay, hold on there. <laughs> Reel it in, son. You lost me just a little bit. You lost me just a little bit. I don't know about the whole population control thing. See, no evidence to that effect. Um, and the idea of, like, they're trying to pump you full of vaccines, everybody should want the COVID vaccine, okay? I do, um, I do tend to believe the science on that front. I don't think that the COVID vaccine is a giant like Tuskegee experiment or something. You know what I mean? That's not to say I would in every circumstance trust the government with whatever. No, of course, there's reason to be skeptical. But this is an area where um, I actually believe the science and I think the vaccine is good. Uh, so that's the part where it's like, whoa, but almost everything else. He casually says, I think we should outlaw billionaires. Damn, son. I know some lefties who don't agree with that. <laughs> there are some lefties who are like, mm, maybe that's a little bit too far. He says we should break up the big tech companies. Um, I think that's a perfectly reasonable position, although I do think there's a, an intelligent debate to be had between breaking them up or heavily regulating them and treating them as public utilities. And I actually lean more on the side of heavily regulating them and treating them as public utilities. Um, I'm open to hearing arguments as to why breaking, breaking them up would be preferable, but I haven't seen anything um, conclusive in my mind about why that's the better approach as opposed to just regulating them strictly and treating them as public utilities. And by the way, with my approach, you can actually expand the First Amendment and have free speech on a lot of these giant social media platforms, which is something people on the right say they're in favor of. But listen, that does require government regulation and I, I, I would argue that's the left position that I'm talking about there. Um, he says, I want to take away your billions. And he says, we need a populist movement. Take the billions, give it to the poor. See, the people he cites, that's where it gets a little sketchy, right? Because uh, Rick Wiles is a well-known anti-Semite. I mean, it's, we've covered the segments where it's not, even, it's not even coded. He just is an anti-Semite, right? Like, and don't take my word for it. Go watch those segments. Believe me, you'll come to the exact same conclusion. But, like, so he brings up Jack Dorsey, Bill Gates, and Mark Zuckerberg. 
And so, yes, I have problems with those people. Of course I have problems with those people. But, like, you know, you should throw in the Coke guy, the Adelson guy. Oh, Adelson's dead, and one of the Coke guys is dead. Um, You should throw in some of the right-wing billionaires as well. And that's where it gets a little sketchy is, like, usually when these guys talk about money and politics and corruption and billionaires, it's like they're super – narrow in criticizing only ones that are nominally left. Like Tom Steyer, 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 is another one that they love to go after because he's a billionaire and he spends a lot of money in politics. And listen, I'm against it as a matter of principle, but I think it's fucked up that when these guys talk about this, it's very, like he's only bringing up the tech guys. Like, all right, dude, you got to bring up Wall Street guys. You got to bring up Goldman Sachs guys. You got to bring up people from the military industrial complex. You know, like, there's more than just problems with the tech industry. You know, I would argue that some of the problems in other industries are even bigger than the ones in the tech industry. So that's a little questionable too, but I'm going to ask you guys, what do you think about what he's proposing here? Um, I don't think he knows enough to really fully explain what he's talking about. So in other words, he's kind of advocating for like a wealth tax. That's one thing he's advocating for. I guess it's 100% tax on all assets above $1 billion. That would be one of the policies he's referring to. And the other one would be UBI. Take that money and give it to the poor. Take that money and give it to the poor. So you fund a UBI system with a 100% wealth tax on all assets above $1 billion. That kind of sounds like a badass policy. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. That sounds like a really badass policy. Now, he's wrong in that, like, you have to have the government play a role. That's the only way you could tax them and give the money to the poor is the middleman would have to be the government because the government is just the extension of us. It's our representatives. So you have to have the government involved. But yeah, you could directly fund a UBI program with a 100% wealth tax on all assets above $1 billion. That's doable. It's workable for sure. And the other thing is, remember the numbers that we just read recently. There was a study from the RAND Corporation and they said that from, I believe the year was 1974 until today, the top 1% has stolen almost $50 trillion from the bottom 90%. If you just had the same wealth distribution as you did in the post-World War II period, and you just continued that all the way up until today, the bottom 90% would be $47 trillion wealthier. That's an extra $1,144 per month per person in the bottom 90%. That's how much the top 1% has been robbing you. So we're already way behind. And honestly, the idea of a 100% wealth tax on assets above $1 billion and using that for UBI, kind of like it. <laughs> that's, that's actually a super badass idea. But having said that, I cannot vote for Rick Wiles because Rick Wiles is insanely fundamentalist to the point where I'm convinced that he's convinced he hears God's voice in his head or some angel's voices in his head or whatever. So, you know, you can't vote for the guy. He's a well-known anti-Semite. Again, don't take my word for it. Go watch it. There's going to be insanely draconian and authoritarian social policies if this guy were to ever get elected. Forget it. Forget separation of church and state. He would piss all over the Constitution in an instant. But, uh, hey, I welcome him waking the fuck up on some economic stuff. That's interesting to see. Okay. 
Next. I'm not a fan of this next one. It actually pisses me off quite a bit. Some lawmakers are now asking cable companies why they let One American News Network and Newsmax spread disinformation. This says lawmakers are demanding answers from Verizon, AT&T, Comcast, Cox, I never heard of that one, and other cable companies who have done nothing to stop disinformation on One American News Network, Newsmax, and Fox News. So, uh, Representatives Anna Eshoo and Jerry McNerney fired off a series of letters on Monday to the CEOs of AT&T, Verizon, Cox, Altus, Comcast, Dish, Charter, which is Spectrum, Roku, Apple, Google, Hulu. Um, And apparently all 11 CEOs were asked to explain why they had done nothing to help counter the, and I'm quoting now, bigotry, disinformation, and hate speech being circulated routinely by outlets like One American News Network. And they were asked to provide ethical justifications for their apathy, uh, and they're told to respond by March 8th. Quote, what moral or ethical principles do you apply in deciding what channels to carry or when to take adverse actions against a channel? So now you have a situation where Democratic representatives are using the force of government to apply pressure to cable companies to censor and take down the networks that are their ideological opponents. Now, I will say this up front because I think this has to be brought up in the conversation. I view it as obvious that One American News Network, Newsmax, Fox News, they're propaganda outlets, and they absolutely get stuff wrong on a regular basis. I would argue that many of the hosts lie on a regular basis. So in terms of the detrimental effect to the body politic that these outlets have, I don't view that as debatable. I view it as we have a clear-cut answer on that, and the answer is they do have a colossally detrimental effect on the body politic, and they are a toxic force in American life, and they do have to take a bunch of the responsibility, particularly Newsmax and One American News Network, to help feeding the paranoia which led to the storming of the Capitol on January 6th. I think that's true. I think that's unavoidable. There's a lot of brainwashing going on, without a doubt. So they're every bit as bad as the most vituperative Democratic lawmaker would say they are. That's what I need to say about that up front. Now, continuing, though, I could not disagree more with what they're doing here. Listen, it is not the job of the government to do this. You have Democratic lawmakers pressuring cable companies to take down, which is effectively censoring or deplatforming outlets they don't like? No, 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 no. I would argue that, honestly, this is against the First Amendment. Because you're not just talking about, because what's the classic argument? Oh, the cable companies have nothing to do with the government, so they could freely decide to not have carry One American News Network or Newsmax. True, but this isn't the cable companies freely deciding to do that at all. This is the cable companies being under pressure from the federal government. So the, the federal government is applying pressure to deplatform and censor outlets that are their ideological enemies. That's unacceptable. So guys, stop, stop and think about it. Imagine we had a situation where 
the Republicans are in control, and they host a hearing, and they bring in the head of YouTube and the head of various social media outlets, and they say, listen, um, Kyle Kalinske, we say, spreads misinformation and disinformation. Why are you allowing him to do that on your platform? Are you okay with him doing that? What, what's your ethical and moral reasoning for keeping up Kyle Kalinske? Why would you do that? Tell me why. I, and I'm putting pressure on you. I'm, I'm uh, putting pressure to try to get you to throw Kyle under the bus. In that set of facts, everybody would be like, or at least my audience would be like, Jesus fucking Christ, look, how bad is this? This is clear censorship and deplatforming and unfair pressure. By the way, you want to know what moral and ethical framework we use for this stuff? Freedom of speech, the First Amendment, the Constitution. Government should not be applying pressure to censor a deplatform, period. And it, I don't care how terrible One American News Network is and Newsmax is and Fox News, although Fox News isn't as bad as the other two, but it's bad still. But I don't care. I don't care how bad they are. It's irrelevant. You can't set up this situation where it's like a ministry of truth. Because the second you allow the Democratic lawmakers to deplatform the right-wing outlets, of course they're going to come after nominally left-wing outlets too and voices that you like. Anybody who's anti-establishment to one extent or another, one flavor of it or another, they're going to come after you. It never stops there. Just like we've seen on social media where they took down some far-right accounts and then boom, next thing you know, Antifa's gone. On Reddit, they take down the Donald, boom, next thing you know, Chapo Trap House is down. I mean, this is what happens. This is what happens. But even if they didn't target the left and they only targeted the right, it would still be wrong. It would still be wrong. It has, as a matter of principle, you need to support freedom. Because I don't trust whoever they would determine is the ministry of truth. I don't trust the judgment of these probably standard corporate Democratic lawmakers. I don't trust them at all, and neither should you. So there is no ministry of truth. There is no way to carry these things out objectively and fairly. You have to lean on the side of freedom. Yes, you can't do abuse. You can't through direct threats of violence, but outside of those very narrow things, you got to let people say whatever they're going to say. So it, it really is unacceptable. It, it is unacceptable. They shouldn't be doing this. It's a waste of time, but it shows you this is all they have. In the same way that the right leans into the culture war stuff because they're fucking you economically, the left does the same shit. They're leaning into their side of the culture war, and they're not doing nearly as much as they should be doing helping you economically. Where are those $2,000 checks, by the way? You're going to have hearings pressuring them to pull down some right-wing cable outlets and you haven't even given us the $2,000 checks yet? Go fuck yourself, man. This is bullshit. Total bullshit. And it's inexcusable. All right. Final story of the day, y'all. So we just got word today that Mike Pence and Donald Trump have officially made up. Now, listen, keep it real. This is as cucky as it gets for Mike Pence because Pence was thrown under the bus by Trump. They really wanted him to stand up in Congress and say, I object to the conclusion of this election and I will not allow it to go through. He doesn't even have the authority to do that. But the right wing maniac um, ecosystem, media ecosystem, they were like pushing this notion and Trump fell for it. He thought Mike Pence could stop the certification of Biden. He wanted him to do that. So during the January 6th attempted insurrection, the diet coup attempt, Pence was 
but, or uh, Trump was firing off anti-Pence tweets. And he was close to getting caught, and Lord knows what would have happened if, if some of these people caught some of these lawmakers. So Pence barely got away, but now he wants to make up with Trump. And apparently him and Trump had a meeting, and it was all very chummy and uh, beyond ridiculous. Pence is a massive cuck. Well, why is he doing this? I mean, why is he doing this? The answer is simple. Trump is now, whether or not people like it, he's the kingmaker. He's the kingmaker of the Republican Party. If he wants to run again, he's likely to get the nomination. Sort of screws the Republican Party, though, because it's already been shown that he can't. Like, he lost. He lost. So they're in this weird place where he could win the primary, but it's not likely he wins the election. So you do have some people in Republican circles panicking, but he's still the kingmaker. And ideally what the Republican establishment wants is somebody who can marry the wings, can marry the uh, pro-Trump base, but also marry it with a more establishment-friendly Republican politician. So in steps Mike Pence. Look at this new poll. GOP 2024 presidential polling, Pence 21%, Cruz 10%, DeSantis 8, 8%, DeSantis out of nowhere, Trump Jr. 8%, Haley 6%, Romney 4%, Crenshaw 2%, Noam 2%, Sass 2%. So this is from Echelon Insights. few things to note there. DeSantis surging. Um, he's been fighting the media rather vociferously in Florida. He's the Florida governor. Um, and he's been getting some right, positive right-wing media coverage. So he surged out of nowhere. Cruz at 10%. Even, I, don't, I don't know if this was before or after the weasel move of trying to go to Cancun during the winter storm in Texas where it was a crisis. The fact that Trump Jr. is at 8% should make all of us want to commit suicide because that's the saddest thing I've ever heard, and he's a ridiculous human being, high on cocaine 24-7, although I'm not knocking him for that. That's the best part of him for sure. Uh, I respect the cocaine use 24-7. I do not respect everything else. Um, but Mike Pence more than doubling the number two spot at 21%. See, Mike Pence is playing the long game. Mike Pence was like, I don't care. I'll cuck myself to Trump. He's the kingmaker. So eventually I want his blessing when I run. That's what Mike Pence is thinking. That's what he's thinking. So he's totally shameless, totally shameless, put all of his pride aside. Let me make up with a guy who really didn't care if I was killed a few weeks ago. Um, because I want his blessing if slash when I run. And who knows? Like, I, I assume there's been conversations about, is Trump going to run again? Is he going to run again? So they're having these conversations behind the, scene, behind the scenes. Is it Pence's turn now? Or is Trump going to run again? Or who else is going to jump into the mix? What about DeSantis now? So A lot of interesting stuff happening behind the scenes, but Pence was definitely playing the long game and is playing the long game. And as we can see, and I told you guys this would happen too, with Trump out of the picture, Pence becomes the instant favorite. So just understand, this is still Trump's party. There's no doubt about it. It's never been more clear. And somehow he's bouncing back even faster than I thought he would. He's bouncing back in record time. Usually when somebody loses, like when Romney lost, he had to go in the woods for a while. When Hillary lost, she literally went in the woods for a while. And they came back and still they were not really liked. Trump has cast a spell over the Republican base. And even in the time where he's supposed to be the most disliked, he's still hanging on to popularity and is still by far the most popular Republican figure. Which you could say is good for Trump, but it might be bad for the Republican Party overall. It doesn't bode well for their 
you know, future prospects. But either way, we're through the looking glass, and this stuff is fascinating to see. But Mike Pence was playing the long game, and now he's the favorite if, and it's a big if, Trump steps aside. Okay, guys, we are done, baby. This week on Crystal Kyle and Friends, get excited. We'll be talking to one of my favorites, Dylan Radigan. I'm so looking forward to this. It's the coolest thing in the world. Dylan is the man. Um, can't wait to talk to him. And like I said, the week after that is uh, Dr. Carl Hart. So a lot of great stuff to look forward to. Love you guys very much. I'll talk to you soon. I hope Tiger Woods gets better. Obviously, it upset me very much that he got into a car crash. You guys know that he's my idol. So anyway, love you guys. Talk to you soon. Peace.